Lance Weiler is a storyteller working in film, TV, games, and code. He's an alumnus of the Sundance Screenwriters Lab, the founding member and director of Columbia University's Digital Storytelling Lab, and is recognized as a pioneer because of the way he mixes storytelling and technology. For over 20 years, Lance has been innovating at the forefront of entertainment, leading the industry into the digital age. With a systems thinking perspective, Lance often develops new methods and technologies to tell stories and reach audiences in innovative ways. In fact, Business Week named Lance one of the 18 who changed Hollywood. Others on the list included Thomas Edison, George Lucas, and Steve Jobs. Maybe a good place to start is by just sharing briefly how we met. I was doing my master's degree at Raindance and was exploring early engagement and then came across an article that you wrote back in 2009 with Screen Daily talking about audiences. And it was through a conversation that we had when I reached out to you for my research that we re- I realized, I think we both realized that we have mutual interests in, I guess, in purposeful storytelling meaningful storytelling, searching for depth in our work. And uh, that's when you told me about Forward Slash Story, which is what you co-created with Christy Dina. And that's how our kind of relationship, friendship kind of began. What do you think was your biggest learning after experiencing and creating Forward Slash Story? What what was your, your biggest takeaway from that? Sure. Well, thank you for having me, Louise. It's really nice to be here. And it's wonderful to be able to just stop and be able to talk about process. Um, it's such an important part of, uh, of making work. Um, and so thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And in, in regards to, I think, what was so powerful about what, uh, you know, Christy and I were working on there, or just the desire to hold space for that, you know, to create almost like a pause button, you know, so you could put a pause on life and you could just be dropped into an exotic location. You could be with people who are from all different disciplines and you could be challenged to really take the time to ask why, right? But to be challenged by others who were finding themselves, uh, maybe in some ways you might identify something as a challenge and they might identify it as an opportunity. And how could you shift perspective in a really dynamic way, uh, in in a fast way. Right. And Mm -hmm. so even though I think what was always really wonderful about forward slash story, like when you're writing, it's like compressing, uh, and, um, you know, kind of elongating time, right? Like the way in which there were moments where it felt like it would, it was so fast and other moments where it would just kind of slow down, you know, which is what you find in a really, in a great film, right? Like the way that you can compress moments or, or you can extend them if you choose to. And so I think holding that space was really important. And then I think a lot of it was kind of getting out of the way, right? You know, you, you in a sense, it's experience design, mm-hmm. you know, like everything's kind of there already. Um, it's like filmmaking, right? Like a lot of people have talked about how one of the most important parts of the process, or you could say, like, I think Robert Altman famously said, it was something like 80% of the process was casting, right? So in a certain extent, it was the curation of the group of people. Mm. Uh, and then it was just a matter of having the right setting. It's like a good dinner party, right? You know, you know, invite interesting people, you have, you, you, you kind of mix that with the food and the atmosphere and then magic happens. And so I think a lot of it was just kind of figuring out how to get out of the way um, to let it be. Right. And not to, you know, and I think the challenge of, of that, and I think, you know, Christy's really great at this in her practice is, you know, being able to have an invisible touch, right. You know, like, so, so it's kind of like, it's guiding you in certain ways when it needs to guide you. And then it's stepping away when it doesn't need to be there anymore. Right. And so I think that that was really the desire. And then I think also the ability to really, you learn so much from just by having to talk about what it is that you do or having to stop and think about what you're doing, right. Or to look at it from a different way, a different perspective. And so, so I think it was like this, this really magical 
like five years and five wonderful cohorts as a way to examine what it was that we were all trying to make from all different angles, you know, and uh, it wasn't fully codified yet. You know, the, the language wasn't set, the grammar wasn't all there. And you were just looking and you were saying, you know, because I always felt like we had such a wonderful opportunity to learn as well, right? And those are the best types of projects. You know, you want to be in something where you have the ability to be stretched or challenged or you have an ability to take something from that experience and learn too. Um, and so I, I think that that was all part of it. It was very much like kind of an immersive learning experience. It felt like an immersive experience that you had so gently guided us through, as you said, like it wasn't a forced and strict uh, structure to it. There wasn't a program in that traditional sense, which is almost like the, the safe way of designing something like this. And I think that you took it to, you both took it to the next level and must have had like a, either it was your experience or just a certainty that, you know, we can trust this process and trust that, you know, that the, the people that we've put together will have this alchemy and, uh, you know, create this environment and this connection between them all that uh, was what it was. Um, and I do remember, I, like it shocks me when I remember that it was only four days that we were there, five nights, four days, right? It felt like maybe two, three weeks at some points and then also super dense and it was over super quickly, but with loads of pockets of memories along the way. So um, yeah, I I thought it was a nice place just to establish this because yeah, I do feel that you both are heavily responsible in in that part of my own process. And I just want to recognize that artist residencies do play a huge role in um, artist journeys, but you both brought for me the experience to another more profound level than I'd experienced in any other way. So I think that says a lot about you both as artists. And so you're a pioneer in your industry when it comes to mixing storytelling with technology. When did this combination become an interest for you? Well, I think that, you know, it's interesting because I wasn't necessarily, I guess, uh, technologically I, I was technical, I guess, in a sense, but I, I, I had had, you know, I had dabbled with computers kind of early on and then kind of fell away from using them for a period of time. Uh, and I came up as a photographer, so I, and, and worked in, in camera department and commercials and things like that. So I was technical in terms of understanding how, you know, cameras would work. Right. Um, but I think the, the moment that was like, uh, kind of a, an epiphany moment for me was I had finished working on a music video, uh, worked all night, uh, and I was at Penn Station in New York, and I was waiting for the train, and I was flipping through. I went into one of the uh, magazine newsstand, whatever places that they had at the time, and I was flipping through a magazine, and I found an ad for a, um, a card that you could put into a PC, into a computer that would allow you to edit. And I was like, I was so blown away by it. I was like, oh my, wow, that's amazing, right? Like I can actually edit at home. Um, and so I went off and I, I worked with my uh, colleague, Stefan Avelos. And what we ended up doing is we, um, we started building our own systems, right? And, uh, and we ended up making a movie uh, for next to nothing, right? It was like a three-figure budget. It was $900 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by the time we were done. And, and it was so liberating. We could have felt like, we felt like we could, we often said that we could have buried it in the backyard. Um, and, uh, it wouldn't have mattered. We could have just watched it with some friends and that would have been great. Right. And it took 86 days for that movie to render on our computers, you know, oh. which is crazy. And we made we made it. And when we finished, it was kind of, there was this element of like, well, I wonder how we can show it. Right. Cause we had made it digitally. Yeah. 
And in order to show it at festivals, we would have to transfer it to film. So what is going to cost like $35,000 to transfer our little $900 movie to, yeah. to film so we could show it at a festival. And we were like, that doesn't make any sense. No. And so around that time, I started doing some research around uh, what is now known as digital light processing. It's, um, it's, it's the way a lot of projection works to this day. Uh, it's like um, uh, all these micro mirrors and really interesting way in which an image is produced uh, electronically, digitally. And so there was a company that had made an announcement, Texas Instruments, and they said, hey, we have this new technology coming out. And, um, and I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. They had a number of uh, companies that they were licensing that core technology to, like Sony and Barco and Christie and all these different NEC. And I thought, well, what if I contact one of those groups and tell them that we have something that represents the future of cinema they have projection that re represents the future of cinema. And we have this movie that we made on our desktop computers. It was all digital. That's like the future. They'll totally be into it. And so it was so long ago, you know, this is like 1997 around then, mm -hmm, 98. Mm -hmm. And so I send snail mail. I write them letters, each of the companies. And I say, we have this movie that we made on our desktop PCs. It represents what we think is the future. And I thought, oh, they're going to totally be all over this. And it was like crickets. Nobody responded. Nobody. Meanwhile, the movie's rendering, rendering, rendering. And we're like, I wonder if we're going to get decent projection for it. And so I, after a bit of time and nobody responded, I sat down again and I, I wrote the letters again. And this is kind of where a little bit of hustle came in. Mm -hmm. I wrote the letters again and I purposely misaddressed them. So they would go to the competitors. So Sony would see a letter that was addressed to Barco and Barco would see a letter that was addressed to Sony. And Great. then all of a sudden they, you know, created a competitive environment. Um, well, what ended up happening was, you know, um, you know, all of them ended up calling and we were only trying to get a projector for the first kind of, for the run that we were doing locally. We ended up with a free projector anywhere in the world uh, for two years. And we introduced that projection to festivals like, um, uh, you know, just so many different places. We brought it and introduced the technology at Sundance and a can and, yeah. um, and all over the place. Um, and so that's when I started to become more interested in the fact that it wasn't just what I was writing, but the storytelling was all of it. Right. And it was like understanding how to not to break from permission based culture to not sit and wait for somebody to tell me it was okay to do something, but to try to figure out how we could problem solve and, you know, make it happen. Uh, so it was very DIY. It was very um, grassroots in the way that it, it operated. And it, it shook the whole industry in a really wild way. You know, I remember I lived on a turf farm, which is like a sod farm at the time. And I was just renting it. I was like in the middle of nowhere. And I remember reading in all the trades, like how our little movie became the first all digital release of a motion picture to satellites and was downloaded onto hard drives. And, and people were talking about it as being the future. It would take, it would take close to almost 20 years, you know, for it to really become mainstay, you know, it was that far ahead, you know, to now where it, you know, depended upon how we net out after this pandemic yeah. and which theaters are still standing it's the main way in which, you know, movies are delivered, which is wild, you know, so. Totally. And this is what led Wired magazine to say that you are one of 25 people to help reinvent the entertainment industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was kind of crazy because we were made a little movie for $900 living on a turf farm at the time. And there was a quote from Francis Ford Coppola at that time that I, I really thought was awesome. It came out of Hearts of Darkness which if you're interested in process, that movie is a really amazing look at the process of making Apocalypse Now and how it takes him to the brink, you know, oh. in so many ways. Um, and he almost becomes like Kurtz going up the river himself. You know, it's like such a crazy experience that he has willing that movie yeah. into existence. And so he has a quote in that, in that film where he says that, I'm paraphrasing. One day, some young girl from Ohio 
uh, will take her father's camcorder and will make, you know, become the next Mozart and the paradigm of Hollywood will fall, you know, and this notion that the democratization of these tools and the accessibility will radically shift the way that it will diversify the voices. It will open up the opportunity for more people to uh, be part of the process. That last part was me. That's me saying that his quote ends with like the Hollywood falling. But, but I think it's interesting because now everybody is a storyteller. So Mm. like when you think about that, it's, the thing that makes the difference is the stories that you tell and why you tell them, right? Mm-hmm, so in mm-hmm. terms of what you're talking about in regards to the process or stopping and really thinking about why you're trying to say something, you know, it's that classic thing of there being, you know, what does a character want versus them coming to realize what they truly need? I think that's very true of storytellers in general. You know, you you put a lot, and I know I've been I've done this a lot in my career where the technology starts to become really exciting and then you have to wrestle with it to make sure that the story isn't, you know, being, uh, being pushed back or pushed to the sides because something's shinier or exciting. Right. And then, and then how do you make work when, you know, you're doing new things and audiences aren't familiar with that work or they don't have a comparison for it? you know, and it starts to become this really interesting challenge in terms of the way that you think about not only how you're crafting the story, but how people will engage with what that world is that you're creating. And this is quite um, a key, I guess, uh, consist- this, something that's consistent with your practice is this relationship between the audience and you and this friction between ownership and authorship. Can you expand on your thoughts around this and and describe the role that audiences play in your own artistic process? Sure. Well, I think I uh, maybe a little over a decade ago, I started to become very interested in design practice and started to get interested in design thinking um, and uh, speculative design. How would you describe design thinking for someone who might not have heard that before? Design thinking really, you know, it was codified out of Stanford. It's been around for probably upwards of 30 years, but it's this idea that you can unlock design and it can move away from what classically was seen as design as somebody doing graphic design or, or um, design around CAD or, you know, in certain regards and moving it more into this, this idea of human centric design, this idea mm-hmm. of like kind of looking and saying where, you know, potentially where there's a need, how do we address that need? What might that be like? Um, and, it was very much adapted by, uh, you know, Silicon Valley in a lot of ways and used around a lot of large technology companies uh, adopted and used some of those methods as a way to accelerate the development of the products that they made. Right. And Mm -hmm. I became interested in it, not for the capitalistic reasons, but interested in that notion of the human centric part and started to wonder what would it be like if you were applying it to problems, you know, not, not just things that were about product. And there were a number of other people, you know, thinking in similar ways to that. Um, and just started to experiment more with that. Um, and this idea of what would it be like to co-create or collaborate with groups of people around complex challenges? Because the more perspectives that you have, the more people that you bring around it, the, the more likely you are to unlock something that was mm. unexpected, right? And so almost like this designing with and for kind of idea. And so uh, along, along the line, I just became more and more interested in the way in which groups collaborate with each other. Like, what does that look like? What does burst collaboration look like? And how can you how can you bring people into a space and allow them to experiment? And forward slash story is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Um, you know, but what if you were doing it towards a common goal and what if that common goal was something that was related to climate or hunger or related to, you know, youth aging out of foster care, 
um, or, you know, was related to youth incarceration or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Right. And so a lot of it kind of stemmed from this idea of like, what's it like to convene a group of people? How can you start to challenge the way in which you're tackling problems? And then I started to just bring in my love of storytelling into that too. And so in 2015, we did a project at the lab that was called Sherlock Holmes and the Internet of Things. Uh, and that grew to like over 2,600 collaborators in 60 countries and like 180 self-organized events all over the world. And so um, with that, we just started to experiment more and more with what it meant to co-create something with a, a large group of people where you had to kind of let go of the control. And there were some things that emerged out of that that I learned that I applied directly to my practice, which were some design principles that I use ongoing. Um, and one was this idea of a trace that when people can see some part of themselves within an experience, um, it, it, it heightens not only the engagement in it, but also leads to these amazing outcomes. And then this notion of agency, not just agency in the traditional sense of agency, but what is it like to wrestle with somebody as an individual versus a group, you know, like agency for one versus agency for many. And how can you help groups of people to not get caught in, you know, like a consensus vortex or ways in which dominant personalities take over, right? Mm -hmm. And then the third was kind of this idea of a thematic frame that you kind of put an, you know, put an umbrella around the whole thing. And the thematic frame allows you to have a common grammar language around it. So Sherlock Holmes is a mystery. I know if I see a taped out body on the ground, I know that there was a crime. Mm -hmm. And we, all of a sudden we can start conversing really quickly, right? There's, yeah. there's a common language there. And then the last was this idea of serendipity management. You know, this notion that what is it to create these small kind of micro moments that allow for mm -hmm. things to, to knock into each other in unexpected ways, right? And so, you know, a lot of digital work is uh, over-designed mm -hmm. and it's so afraid that somebody's going to break it, that it's so controlling, that it doesn't leave or create space to allow for that randomness, you know, that can be so... Uh, you know, beautiful. And so those four principles I've found over and over again in the work that I make. And I become more and more fascinated with the tension that exists between kind of a creating an experience, figuring out how to let go of it, where to let go of it, and to be okay with what's going to happen. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the results have been really kind of electric, amazing along the way. Well, it runs parallel to life in a lot of ways. Do you feel that your work as an artist bleeds into your own philosophy and way of living? Do you feel that there's a direct correlation there? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely do. I mean, I think it, um, I see it reflected in my own life and I see elements of where I am trying in my own life to be more present. Right. And being present and, you know, and what is it to be present, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of what I was just describing is all about being present. It's about being able to actively listen. It's about being in the moment. It's about being okay with ambiguity. And I carry a lot of those things into my own life. I think that that is something that I try to apply and, you know, how I raise my son or, how I, you know, engage with the world outside of the work that I do. Um, but also I think that there's a really wonderful part of it in, in the sense of how reality is shaped, you know, and what is, you know, how can I have, how can I move through life and be able to not solely just manifest something, but be able to be, you know, be able to be okay with wherever it is and whatever's happening and be able to navigate that. And I think in a lot of ways, my life has informed my practice and my practice has informed my life, right? You know, That's like so when I was when I was younger with my dog, I hiked a good part of the Appalachian Trail. You know, I, I, I hitchhiked up there, went 
to Mount Katahdin, which is in like massive middle of nowhere, you know, like you don't see any other human beings. And for six weeks, I just walk that trail, you know, from Maine all the wow. way down into on your own Massachusetts or with, other people? with my dog and me. Just your dog. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you meet other people along the way sure. and, and you would find that, that the whole trail, the Appalachian trail takes six months to walk. You know, I only did a small part of it, but, but, um, there was something about, you know, getting up, you know, when it would be light walking until it got dark, making camp, being there and then doing it again, you know, and there was all the people that you were meet, you would meet were amazing and interesting and they all had their own stories. Yeah. Uh, and so I think often in life, we, we get so caught up in everything that we don't give ourselves that time to just be, that's what's so powerful about a moment that we've been going through with this global pandemic, a collective shared moment around such a, you know, horrible challenging global pandemic. Uh, but, you know, if you look out of pandemics, Renaissance come, you know, mm-hmm. so like what, what could be on the other side of this? And, and hopefully that element of reflection leads to really exciting and interesting new work. So I'm always trying to try to find time to be reflective nice. in my life and also in my practice. That makes sense because then it, I mean, as you said, we don't often give ourselves that time to slow down and and reflect on ourselves and our own process to even question what we think. So I think that people listening will hopefully see this as a reminder to take the time just to switch off. What what does that look like to you? Do you just just take, remove yourself from technology and just be, do you read? What's your, how do you... um, strengthen that presence that you're that gives you that headspace well i live out i live in the country so that's like a start (laughs) um (laughs) so so and um a lot of it is like walking or hiking um being outside is a, a big part of it you know stopping like i'll often kind of stop and i'll just pause, kind of close my eyes and then really try to listen to all the different things that I'm hearing, you know, like to isolate different sounds and try to, you know, cause I, I live, I'm very fortunate. I live in a place where, um, I don't know if you have this in the UK, but the Audubon society is like for like bird, uh, preservation. So right. I live in like, a, I live in a, an area that's been preserved for birds. So oh, wow. we have so many birds. Like so, oh, if I if it was gosh. if I was if it was warmer and I could sit outside, you would hear them all. Like a lot of times, I'll do calls and people are like, "Where are you?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm in my backyard." <laughs> and they're like, "It sounds like you're at an aviary or something," you know. Like oh. so, um, so some of it is like kind of just trying to slow down enough to hear the things that are around you. Mm. Um, and then I think the other the other things are trying to get at a point to where you just stop thinking yeah, and you, you just are, uh, I guess in a certain sense, right? Like, so sometimes that just comes from movement or exercise or whatnot, but I think environment is a really big thing, you Mm. know, at least for Mm. me. That reminds me of two books that I read recently. One is Rewild Yourself by Simon Barnes. And the other is Geelong Thubton's Amongst Guide to Happiness. And in Rewild Yourself, he talks about listening to nature and and gaining a sense that we have kind of lost through time um, and reconnecting to that and and strengthening that muscle uh, because it tunes you into not only what you're listening to, but the what people are saying in front of you when you're having conversations and allows you to be more present. Um, One of the projects that I did want to bring up uh, with you is... Frankenstein AI, which premiered at Sundance and was an immersive and collaborative theatre piece that you did. And it prompted audiences to reveal their memories, emotions, fears and hopes, and essentially, I guess, what it means to be human. After this experience that you went through with this, what did this experience teach you about what it means to be human? Well, I think uh, Frankenstein AI was has been a really fascinating project, and I think that there's something interesting when I look at the work 
that it's I'm really comfortable in the uh, the journey. It's not so much about the destination, like I have to get there and it has to be finished. It's almost like the work kind of continues to live and I'm comfortable in it iterating and becoming something else. So in the case of what it was at Sundance versus what it was like nine months later at ITFA, it was two different things. Wow. You know, it was an immersive theater piece yeah. at Sundance and then mixed with installation and machine learning choreography and this whole crazy Frankenstein monster thing going on with various visualization and projection. And then it came into it phone. It was a, a dinner party with, that was hosted by an AI, you know? And so that was done in conjunction with the national theater and, and if the doc lab, but in both cases, I think what the project showed me was the power of holding space that allowed people to express themselves uh, in a way that allowed them to slow down and allowed them to be present for each other. So in the case of Frankenstein AI, in both instances, it started with people sharing a story of isolation and, and a story of connection, right? And AI became a wonderful metaphor for Frankenstein's monster, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that you create something and it gets outside of your control. This notion, like the core themes of Shelley's work are really kind of about isolation and connection, about the other, you know, about you unleashing something um, and you can't control it anymore. And so I think what I learned kind of going through that project was that, you know, embracing, as I mentioned before, the ambiguity of it and the challenges and the struggles of, you know, working with artificial intelligence, which in a lot of ways is kind of like you're collaborating with a toddler. It's incredibly temperamental. A lot of people think it's a lot more sophisticated than it is. Eventually it will, it will get there, but it has a, a, a distance to go. I think it was just the power of humans helping something else to learn, you know, them being in the moment where a machine was asking them questions about what it was to be human led to these amazing philosophical conversations about what it truly meant to be human. So this ability to have something that's posing a question to you, but at the same time, you thinking about the implications of you helping it to learn mm. was something that was incredibly powerful. Yeah. So I think in, in that sense, you know, the flipping the script on it mm. to where how we normally, our phone is the closest that most people come to AI. And, and in, in most cases, it's a personal assistant. But the moment you flip that and then the machine starts to ask you questions, it challenges the dynamic. And I'll never forget when we powered it up, right? And the first question that it asked was, you know, why do humans like having sex even though they can see in color? And it was just like, I don't even know what that means. Like, is that about race? What is that? What is that dealing <laughs> yeah. with? Right. Or, and then it follows up and it's like, why, what is it like to wear human? And it's like, oh, does that mean there are times when we're not human? When are we not human? What does that mean? And so all of a sudden this crazy output from a machine that we had trained on Shelley's prose, we had created what we called fake and steam, which was a chat bot that we taught to generate shell to to yeah. write in Shelley prose, and we took all kinds of data sets from the internet, you know, in terms of things from Reddit, and just mashed it all up, and it was spitting stuff back out at us. And and some of it's like word salad, but every you know, as it got better and better, it would start to pose these things that would make you pause, and it would make you start to really dissect it and unpack yeah. it. And so I think coming out of that, it was like the power of a prompt, um, the ability to kind of uh, challenge people's expectations in terms of what technology is or their relationship with it. So I'd say that those were like the areas of the biggest learning that kind of came out of that project. So interesting. How do you go about programming a machine like that? Is the software already formed or you completely make it from scratch? Well, it's all moving so quickly, 
when we did that in 2018, we, uh, we worked with um, a data scientist uh, who happens to do data science for the city of LA. His name's Hunter Owens. He basically, and, and there's more, you can find out a whole bunch of more detail about this at uh, Columbia DSL has a, um, a medium publication. And you can also access some of the the code that we have on GitHub, but nice. basically what uh, Hunter did was he he programmed and built the the Fakenstein chatbot, right? And so that started to create a lot of data for us because in order to train AI, what you need is a lot of data, which is known as the corpus, right? And so you feed that into the machine, and then it's just a lot of baking, basically. You know, you kind of let the machine kind of uh, spit it back out. You look at what it is. You say, okay, that's not, how do we, let's change this parameter. Let's try to feed in these other data sets that might alter it in some way. And you just keep doing that over and over and over again. Right. That was two years ago. And it's still true to today, but now a lot of the tools are becoming more accessible, you know, with GPT-3 in particular from OpenAI, you can sit down and you can just start to type and you could, you could write out what you want a website to be and it will give you the code. You know, you can, you can, there's so much more in just a short period of time that you can do now than where we were two years ago when we were doing that project. It's just so accelerated. There's like um, uh, software like Runway ML. Yeah. Which allows you to, to, to do text and, and audio, uh, well, images and video. You don't even have to know any code, right? So where Hunter was like hard coding what we were doing. Now, a lot of that's become readily accessible and much easier to use. Wow. You've always seemed to be ahead of the curve and very futuristic in in your approach. Could you share any insight into what you think the future to come at this point in time will be? I think that um, I'm fascinated by speculation and fascinated by this idea of creating future artifacts, you know, and this notion of imagining there's not one future, there's futures. It's like plural, right? There's so many different possibilities and they're dependent upon so many factors. Um, And it's kind of almost like a moving target all the time. Uh, it's, It's incredibly difficult to predict, but I think what's really exciting about it is the ability to, you know, explore, some of that. And so I think I, 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 in my own work, I kind of look and I, I think maybe because I'm dyslexic or whatnot, I've always been really fascinated by, and it took me a long time to realize that I'm a systems thinker. I never even knew there was such a thing. It wasn't until I stumbled upon like Buckminster Fuller and some of the work that he was doing that I started to realize, oh, wait, I think in systems and I make these connections between things. And I'm kind of looking at it in a way of where I might see something emerging that's interesting and then I mash it up with something else, you know, and I juxtapose it against something and I throw it all into a pot and I see what it might taste like. And a lot of times it might taste horrible, you know, but then I'm like, Oh, there's something interesting there. And I'll keep going back to it. And through persistence Mm. um, and just experimentation, certain things will percolate that, that I didn't expect. Um, But I think it's like kind of thinking, or, or, or realizing that things are systems and, and just thinking about like, oh, what would it be like if I combine that with this and this other thing? And, and some of that I can see in my practice in terms of wanting to bring together diverse groups of people, right? The other thing is like taking things and, and mashing them up in totally unexpected ways, you know, like Sherlock Holmes and the Internet of Things. Mm. It was like, that those were two crazy things. But then in my own mind, I was like, well, narrative deduction. And we're at this moment where there's this ubiquitous technology like the internet of things that a lot of people don't understand. What if we use narrative deduction in an interesting way to explore that technology? And could that become, could we take, you know, great literature and use it as a way to understand the present and potentially the future? Right. So in some ways, that's kind of like backcasting. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But it also aligns with um, I have a colleague named uh, Jorgen Vandersloot who runs a futures 
he works a lot in applied futures uh, with a group called Mikowski. I mean, he has this great story that he would tell that was kind of about where, you know, Kennedy basically in the 60s, you know, gave this declaration that by the end of the decade, we were going to send someone to the moon. And, but at that time, when he said it, they had only just been able to circumvent the globe. And so the idea of sending somebody over 250,000 miles away to some rock and yeah. then kind of slingshotting them back seemed impossible. And so the story goes that what NASA did was they went off and they started having a party. They were drinking and eating and, you know, not sure how they were ever going to do it. Right. And, uh, and then somebody was like, well, let's imagine that the astronauts are just walking in this door and they're just coming from, you know, coming back right to earth. And then somebody said, well, okay, well, how did they get here? How, well, they got here in a van. Well, how, where did the van pick them up? Was it a hard or soft landing? And then they worked their way all the way back to the launch. So they kind of reverse engineered it. Because if they would have started it in the moment, they would have been like, no, we tried that. No, but, no, but, no, but, no, but. But they embraced kind of the, almost like this yes end thinking. Mm. And by reverse engineering it, they, they, they went from a future scenario backwards. Is this an example of design thinking, as you were explaining before? It has elements of the iteration that you would find in design thinking, but it's more akin to speculative design, which is the kind of embracing this idea of there being the possibility of different types of futures. Um, and there's a whole bunch of methods that are within that practice, you know, where you can use things like backcasting or you can, uh, Dr. Stuart Candy has a really great kind of uh, experiential ladder that you can work through. And there's a lot of tools that exist within that space. Um, but yeah, that idea that, you know, you free yourself from the moment that you're in and all the things that you know, and you project into the future where the rules haven't been set yet. You know, so somebody can't yeah. necessarily just say, no, well, we can't do that. Yeah, it removes the limitations so that you can, all is, all is possible. Oh, I love how experimental you are with your approach and how, I don't want to say relaxed because I'm, it's not, I don't mean relaxed as in like lazy, but you, it feels like you're almost just like guiding your projects and letting your projects determine the, their own future in a way, as opposed to you determining what your projects are. And I imagine one of the, well, I know that one of the tools that you use, because you shared this with me when we originally spoke on the first ever conversation about the five times why as a, a tool for uh, digging into your own practice and, and getting beyond, I guess, the familiar and what you're used to. And I was wondering whether there are other tools or practices that have helped you go deeper in your own artistic practice alongside the five whys. Sure. Well, for anybody that's listening and isn't familiar with Five Times Why, it's um, the it originated off of the Toyota assembly line, um, and they would use it as a way to kind of ask a why at the end of each question, right? So, like, oh, the thermostat for the car isn't working. Why? The person didn't bring it in for the sixty thousand mile checkup. Why? They didn't get the notification in the mail that let them know that they should, right? So a why at the end of each question, yeah, yeah. we kind of just use, and others use this too, modify it where the why is the same question each time. So you find yourself kind of going deeper and deeper with it, right? You have the superficial answer that you just throw out at the top. And maybe around the third question, it starts to get really kind of challenging. And it forces you to think because you've exhausted these other like throwaway questions, you know, like, or, you know, throwaway answers, I should say. And then it pushes you to go deeper. So I think things that involve prompts are a really easy way. And I constantly kind of use them like an appreciative inquiry is another way to do it, where we might have um, a prompt that has a sharing a story about a moment that was at some point in our career that we felt was an epiphany or a transformative. And then we'd share that story and then we would look for common characteristics. And, and then instead of it just being a single question we ask each time, we would open up and ask any question that we wanted, you know, to, to go deeper with it. But we would know that we were trying to look for 
similar characteristics to whatever that transformative, for instance, moment was. Yeah. Um, and then out of that, we would look and we'd say, oh, what was similar about what we had said, you know, and, and then we would kind of use that as a way to surface kind of a deeper understanding of some of the principles that were at play in, you know, were there things that we could see that led to that transformative moment? You know, was it mentorship? Was it the fact that somebody was at a, a moment of crisis? Was it, you know, was it an environment that they were in? What, what were those things? And, and what could we see? What could I see from your, the moment you shared and the moment that I shared and others shared? And could we surface those things? And then in surfacing them, would principles emerge that we could look at and we could say, oh, those are interesting. If we put those principles together, could we create an environment that would help to make a transformation possible? Right. And so it's like a lot of it's it's things like that. But I think okay. that the simplest thing is really the just the power of a question, you know, how a question is incredibly inviting and allows people to be active. Right. And to encourage that we're, we're developing a uh, we've been working on a high school futures program. And a big part of that has been allowing the students to be architects of what it is how they can be architects of their learning uh, as opposed to us being top down. What is it like to truly build a collaborative learning environment? Well, if you're going to do that, you know, you're really challenging the notion of student and teacher, you know, mashing that up. And then what is it for a student to become a mentor to an adult, you know, and just kind of playing playing with those things and exploring that as well. But I'd say to answer your question, just leaving time, you know, the pause that I mentioned at the top of this conversation is probably one of the most important things that I've learned. You know, some people will apply it in competitive ways within business. You know, it's like the awkward pause, you know, like I'm in in an interview or I'm trying to get something from somebody and in a manipulative way, I'll, I just won't talk. Right. And there'll be this pause and then yeah. somebody will go to fill the fill pause. It. Yeah. Now you can use that in certain ways that are highly manipulative to determine if an employee is going to fit, you know, the role that you have, but you can also apply the pause in a way to stop your own thought. Mm. to allow you to just be in the moment. So you turn it in on yourself instead of interrogating the other person. You do it with your own self. Yeah. So things like that. I mean, I I think some of these things are common to, you know, Eastern philosophy and, you know, I mean, I'm not saying anything that isn't new. You know, that's what makes it so, so powerful, I think. Well, I can't help myself but to ask you why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? I don't know. I mean, I think I'm an inquisitive person. Um, and I think I, I like the aspect that I don't know, you know, and I like to try to figure things out, you know, so I think that there's an element of wanting to experiment and see what'll happen. And, and I think there's another part that I, you know, coming up that I, I worked in really, really high pressure situations you know, like I, when I was, um, I mean, they're not, they're not a matter of life and death. Right. But they, you know, a lot of the people that were around them acted as though they were right. There was a lot of money that was on the line. There was a lot of, a uh, lot of things where, you know, uh, a, a mistake would derail a huge thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I can remember, I can remember many times working on very superficial things that I thought were superficial at the time, but I did my job you know, like I remember, you know, pulling focus on huge car commercials, right? And the car, if there's a wet down and the road's all windy and the sun's going down, it's magic hour. And you're on like a 600 millimeter lens and the car is going to come around and you have one take to get it. And everybody's freaking out. And then, and then everybody stops and then it's all up to you to make sure that the shot's actually in focus. Right. So like everything just slows. And if you get all caught up and everybody going crazy and everybody screaming and they're, you're just kind of there and you're just doing your thing, you know, and you just concentrate on what it is and you just make it work. Right. And you find yourself in that moment 
and you're like, okay, everything's slowed down. Everything gets silent, even if there's a lot of noise and you just focus on it and you just nail what you need to nail. Right. And I think that that ability, um, I think early on and doing that over and over again, just made me start to think about things differently or being responsible for huge amounts of little independent machinery and gear and going from one country to another country to another country and having to multitask at such high levels that when I kind of got away from that, I was able to defrag my brain and like just move into my own more into my own creative practice. I took some of that ability to multitask and I took some of that ability that I had developed to focus and I just started to apply it more into my own practice. So before when you were saying relaxed, it's like, it's, it's almost kind of a Zen thing, mm. you know, it's like, Flow state. I, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, and I love that, you know, I love, I love when you can get into that state. And, and I think a lot of the times you realize that you're the, the one that's preventing it. You know, if you just let something happen and you don't worry so much about controlling it all the time and you let it break, there's incredible freedom when it breaks. There's incredible freedom when it fails. And the more that you fail with it, the more that you let that, and it it hurts, (laughs) but the more that you do it, eventually it doesn't matter anymore. And then you're like, okay, let's break it. And you're okay with that. You're like, okay, let's just break it. And then you get to something that's more meaningful, something that is um, more authentic, something that is, and it almost starts to attract other people to want to be a part of what it is because you're willing to go there. You're willing to not have it be perfect. You're willing to let it be and out of, you know, just trial and error amazing things start to grow. Right. And so that's like, that's kind of life in general, right? Like if it doesn't break you, it makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. It's only if you let it break you, Yeah, you know? So I think that's very, you know, true of, of creative process. So I think that that's part of why I do what I do. You know, it's this desire to, you know, I'm a life learner, you know, a long time ago, my mom gave me some sage advice when I had failed and it got beat up over something. She said, don't worry, you're not a sprinter. You're a long distance runner. And I was like, I was like, thanks mom. That's such, I guess good parenting has played a role in your own artistic process as well. Um, That reminds me as well of the, speaking of sage wisdom, the analogy of, well, not just the analogy, but the, the process of the lobster, that the lobster's shell will only break away and crack and and reveal the next layer once the lobster is under the stress and the it's triggered under that high pressured situation to then essentially grow which sounds like a lot like how you're describing your process don't be afraid of those moments that feel like they're squeezing us and they're high pressured that's maybe where we even learn the most well, I'm tempted to ask you why again, but I think that you've done this exercise enough times. Your answer has revealed, you know, you it feels that you're, you've, you've hit the sweet spot of your own authenticity. And I have to say that, you know, you were talking earlier about your presence and that that's something that's important to you. That's the first thing that I noticed about you is your level of presence and your listening skills like how astutely you listen. And uh, I was reading a book the other day on on the Meisner technique, on the acting um, approach. And they said that the greatest gift you can give someone is the quality of your attention. And I think you have refined your ability to listen and be attentive. And yeah, I just wanted to recognize that because I think it's a really valuable quality that you have as a person and in in doing in being as you are you bring that out in other people uh so thank you for that and for inspiring me and I'm sure many many others in in your in your journey um and I guess my final question that I ask all of the the guests here on the Slow Cook podcast 
is if you could step inside the mind of another artist for a day, who would it be and what would you specifically like to explore whilst you were there? Wow. Well, first of all, I want to you know, thank you for what you said just prior to that. So thank you for that. And I think uh, what you're doing in terms of with the podcast and your own exploration is what's exciting. Like when you kind of dig into process and you give the time for that, some really wonderful things will come from it. In terms of uh, artists, um, that's an interesting question in regards to, you know, immediately my mind starts to go to, well, how do I define artists and what time period would I want to do it in? And can I only choose one? And, you know, and I start to, I start to kind of think about that in a variety of different ways. And then I think, well, would I want it to be an artist? You know, would I want it to be a scientist? Would I want it to be somebody who was different, you know, in terms of the thinking? And so my, I would love to like, you know, I mentioned Buckminster Fuller earlier, but I would love to be able to step into that, you know, into some of his thought process and be able to kind of look at the way that he was viewing and seeing the world and the way that he was thinking about, um, you know, complex systems at that time and, uh, and the way that, the way that he processed things and the way that he approached them. And I mean, he was like, he did a lot of crazy he had a lot of crazy ideas, you know, like, so he put a lot of crazy things out there, but then there was, there were other elements of him, you know, like the formation of the world game, you know, where he identified the, the way in which youth could come together and they could work together to tackle global problems. Right. And that's really fascinating or, or even just, you know, certain ways that he would think about, you know, the fact that, you know, and I'm paraphrasing that, you know, we're called upon to be architects of the future, not its victims, you know, and just some of these ways in Black Mountain College and some of the things that he was doing that were just really kind of fascinating in terms of holding space, you know, for others to be able to explore and experiment and to come together in interesting ways. And so I think I would love to kind of crawl in there for a little bit and see what that was like in terms of the challenges that he faced and the way that he thought about it. And also the way that he tried to, like, I think sometimes there's a feeling of some of, some of these things are foreign, but yet they're not, you know, like human connection is it's, you know, it's something we crave, but thinking about, human connection in terms of collaboration or the way in which you define these things or how you start to come together to try to tackle complex issues. Like I think we find ourselves in a moment right now where um, we really need that, you know, amongst the polarization, amongst uh, the misinformation or the deception, the ability to have or shape a shared reality becomes even more important. And, uh, and so I think I would, I would, I would be interested to see what he thought of this moment and how he would address this moment. Um, and what that, what that would, what that would lead to. Interesting. And I can't not ask this. What is your definition of an artist? What was going through your mind when you were considering that? I think, uh, I guess I, uh, creativity, you know, something that was rooted to creativity that wasn't necessarily tied to any particular medium or, or format or, you know, just being able to be creative in, in a way that was, you know, flowing, you know, that flow state that you talked about before, you know. So, you know, I, I think that's, that's how I kind of defined it. Lance Weiler, thank you so much. It's, it's always insightful when I speak with you. So I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Really appreciate it. And best of luck with the podcast. Thanks. Well, this is the end. This is the final episode. So um, any last words? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of something good that would be good as a close. Well, I don't know. Endings are beginnings, aren't they? Ever profound. Ever profound. <laughs> Let's go with that. Endings are beginnings. And so we will see you in a new beginning, in a new 
space and uh, look forward to bringing you more conversations with artists. Thanks again, Lance. Thank you. Whoa, what a way to end season one. Thank you so much for listening and for being a part of this journey. We're always happy to hear from you. So any feedback that you have, just get in touch at slowcooked underscore. So I was thinking, how do I round up this first series? What, how, do I, how do I complete this? And then just this week, I've been enjoying a new series called You, Me, Her on Netflix, written and created by John Scott Shepard. And I thought that I would share with you a dialogue that kind of stood out and resonated with me that was shared between the co-lead Jack Trukarski and Dean Weinstock. And funnily enough, the episode that I'm referencing is also their season one finale episode. But before I do, I just want to quickly thank Clever Almeida for the poster artwork, Wild Camp for the awesome original soundtrack, to Bruno Santafanti for helping me late at night getting these edits together, and to FCML for continuously supporting our own artistic process. I am your host, Louise Salter, and it has been an absolute joy to bring to you Slow Cooked, and I leave you with this. Don't do anything just because you can. Don't do anything you don't love. Don't do anything just because other people think you should. Don't do anything because you're afraid to do something else.